Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have good return from their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty with his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I want to ask you if you recognize this lady. You have to be under the age of 25. Who knows who she is? Yes. Well done. There's your imaginary chocolate. <laughs> Judy Garland was the OG celebrity. She was at the age of 16 in 1939. She appeared in the movie The Wizard of Oz and sang the number one song of the 20th century called Over the Rainbow. As time passed, though, she felt increasingly empty in her life. She was actually a really tragic character. Um, after she won the Oscar for the movie The Wizard of Oz. Can you imagine winning an Oscar at the age of 16? She was the most bankable star in Hollywood. Success and achievement and wealth and fame um, couldn't feed her desire, though, to be loved and wanted. And her life was really a mess. At the age of 28, she tried to kill herself. She owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes unpaid. She was addicted to prescription drugs provided to her by her mother. She went through four divorces and was married five times. She was a legend whose life, like many celebrities who are legends, fell apart. Um, a reporter recorded these words from her once. She said, if I'm such a legend, then why am I so lonely? She craved the limelight. But what happens when the applause stops? 
She wasn't motivated by money as much as her need for praise and recognition and acceptance and love, which is a need that all of us in varying degrees can identify with. She knew that people loved her characters that she played in her movies. She knew that people appreciated her talent in singing and dancing and acting, but she craved being known personally. And tragically, at the young age of 47, she died of an overdose of drugs in 1969. When we live life as though this is all that there is, that is, life under the sun, we will grasp at things to make our lives feel meaningful. If there is no God who gives us meaning and purpose, then all that is left is really for us to make up our own meaning and purpose, and that will last for as long as it lasts. But the three things that we really crave more than anything else in this life, life under the sun, to deliver to us meaning and purpose is power, achievement, and wealth. And so that is really the, the guts of what I want to say to you tonight and what the preacher, the prediker in chapter 4, is wanting us to look at tonight. We know from the celebrities that we follow or watch or read about we know that those things, power, achievement, and wealth, don't actually deliver happiness. They don't provide meaning, which is why celebrities are always such a mess. And yet we crave those things, and we chase those things, and we think somehow it's going to be different for me. I want you to understand that um, there is a distinct structure in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. There are three main paragraphs that we're going to spend most of our time on, and then a fourth paragraph that I'll end with. The three first paragraphs all begin with the word, the words, I saw. I saw, I looked. There it is in verse 1. Again, I looked and I saw. Verse 4. I saw. Verse 7. I saw. And each paragraph ends with the word, better. Verse 3, 6, and 9. And the, so what he's going to do is he's going to take us through each of these things. First, power, then achievement, and then wealth. And so first, let's look at power and oppression. Look at verse 1. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. Have you seen the tears of the oppressed? They have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. You know, oppression is everywhere that you look in our world. Um, it, it, it really appears in different forms. It's got different names. Coercion or manipulation or exploitation or discrimination or harassment or racism or sexism. Uh, oppression is just all around us. The preacher is worried that when he looks at the world, he sees oppression. He sees the terrible things that are taking place in the world. Have you seen the tears of the oppressed? It's at every level of society, isn't it? Nationally, the, most, the seven most oppressive countries in the world in order of oppression are Eritrea, Equatorial Guinea, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Four of those seven are on our own continent measured by their human rights record. Maybe closer to home are really the tears of the oppressed at a societal level. Uh, maybe we've grown hardened, actually, to seeing this, but the hunger, the, the grinding poverty in our country, I read the other day, astonishing figure, 
that 30% of South African children go to bed hungry. 30%. Think about that for a minute. On South African children, that's our country, go to bed hungry. Unemployment, gender-based violence, etc. Has there ever been a political system or an economic superstructure that has solved oppression? Where are our political scientists? Have we got any in the room? Don't be embarrassed. Um, do we have any economists in the room? Yeah, we've got one. Uh, well, where, where are the solutions to the economy and to the oppression that we see all around us in every country and right across history? You know, for some, oppression might feel like it's something out there that other people struggle with. But actually, it can occur at a personal level as well. You know, the, the bully on the school playground who might have physical power. I heard of a terrible thing that happened last week where four bullies beat up a, a grade 10 in, a, in one of our schools, put him in hospital, and did some unmentionable things to him. That happens. It's oppression. Or the popular crowd in the office or in res or in your social circle who have the power over you to make you feel like a second-class citizen. Or the overbearing parents who use the power of their authority and manipulation to get what they want from you or to drive you too hard. Or perhaps most hidden of all, the abusive husband or wife controlling and oppressing behind closed doors. The preacher recognizes something that our world is more and more sensitized to, and that is that wherever you have power, you have oppression. Whoever has agency can lord it over those who don't. And who would deny that ours is a power-hungry world, a world ravaged by the pursuit of power? I don't know how up-to-date you are with what's going on politically in our country, whether you read News 24 or whatever, but this, this weekend, full of political uh, one-upmanship against each other as the various parties on their electioneering campaigns in an election year are grasping politically at power. But it happens socially, and it happens relationally, and the word empowerment has become a charged word in our society and in our generation, whether we mean it politically or whether we mean it from a gender point of view or economically. And this works its way. Some of you may not be aware of the fact that actually you are victims of oppression. It actually works its way into our intimate relationships. Uh, when you have a boyfriend and a girlfriend and one of them is more insecure than the other, the secure one has power over the insecure one. Some of you might be in that as, as I speak. And so maybe you want to call that sort of micro-oppression or abuse. But it characterizes many relationships as we jockey for position and one-upmanship against each other in relationships, trying to grasp control all the time. The disempowered have no comforter, the preacher says twice in verse 1. He sees oppression under the sun. He sees the tears of the oppressed. He sees the uncomforted. And he sees that power is on the side of the oppressor. And so in verse 2, he declares that the dead are better off. It's quite shocking. Better rather be dead than be oppressed. Those who've already died are happier than the living who are still alive. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, look at the next verse. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the, who, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. You know, um, we'll keep that verse up for a bit. This, uh, are there any philosophers in the room? Anyone studying philosophy? Just engineers, then. <laughs> okay. And the easy engineering, industrial. <laughs> Sorry. Bad joke. Okay. Do you know, um, philosophy, there was one philosopher in the last service. Philosophy is finally catching up to the Bible. Um, there, is a, there is a philosophy prof at UCT by the name of David Benatar, who has written a book which you can show. Um, it's actually, I don't think you can see it. It's called Better Never to Have Been. The subtitle is The Harm of Coming into Existence. His um, area of philosophy is called antinatalism. Um, that means that he, 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 he thinks that the world would be better if humans didn't exist. He argues that every person is severely harmed by being brought into existence. And that in bringing any person into existence without their permission harms them. <laughs> here is a quote. Here is a direct quote from his work. He says, Most lives are overall very bad and not worth having. Now, the preacher said that 3,000 years ago in verse 3. He's only catching up now. And the preacher would agree with him. You know, the likelihood of you experiencing oppression in one form or another in life makes life not worth living. Better if you weren't born. Antinatalism. If life under the sun is all you've got. And maybe that's where the preacher and, and Professor Benatar part ways. Let's talk about the second paragraph. He wants to talk to us about achievement. Look at verse 4. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Mind you, verse 5, laziness is not better. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. The Bible is against laziness. That is a description of laziness. And then verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That is, rather be contented with less than be on the hamster wheel and never getting off and always chasing more. This is the world we live in, isn't it? The world that is never contented, never satisfied. There is a whole industry that has sprung up to make sure that we are never satisfied. It's called advertising. You're never satisfied. You've just got the new phone and you can't wait for the two-year contract to be up to get the next new phone, which you'll be dissatisfied with within a month. Because of how individualistic we are in the West, achievement is one of our great idols. And can I say to you, most of you are Westerners, and most of you who are students, well, if you are a, stu a university student in our country, you are in the top 5% of South African achievers. There is a very, very high probability that for most people in the room, achievement is one of your idols. It's one of the things that you chase. It's one of the things that you worship. 
So let's listen to what the preacher has to say to us because we are really being spoken about here. And you see how up-to-date the Bible is and how relevant it is. You know, it's different for Easterners. For Eastern religion, being an individual with hopes and dreams and aspirations and the desire for achievement and success is the root of the problem of human condition. And so in an Eastern way of thinking, the way to solve that is to get rid of individuality. Eastern religion sells you a way to numb yourself so that you don't feel that you seek union with all creation and at last finding freedom by becoming a drop of water in the ocean. That is, in the East, peace comes from ceasing to be an individual, but in the West, it's exactly the opposite. The way to find meaning in life in the West is to achieve as an individual. If I achieve, then I can become somebody with meaning and purpose and value. You know, if I can get so many X amount of followers, then I, then I feel um, validated as a person. I can have meaning. The dark side of the achievement myth is that if I have no, I have no meaning or purpose or value unless I prove it over and over and over again. For you are never off the hamster wheel. You're only as good as your last whatever, in my case, sermon. If I don't achieve, then there is no justification for my life. If you feel overlooked, or if you feel empty, or if you feel unloved, or if you feel rejected, get back on the treadmill, try harder, achieve more. That's the West. Maybe somebody comes from a home like that, where you've been driven to achieve. And that is the culture of the home that you've been raised in. It's part of our wallpaper. And ultimately, the preacher says, do you know what? That desire for achievement, do you know what drives it? Envy. Competition. Comparison. Verse 4, I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Achievement has become self-medication for the tensions and the pain of life in the West. Um, Do you know who Andre Agassi was? Some of you. He was one of the greatest tennis players who ever lived. Grand Slam tennis legend. Here's a quote from him after he won um, the Grand Slam. Now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. They lied. The good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad, not even close. Achievement does not deliver to us the things that we long for. As we seek to medicate ourselves with achievement, actually it makes any present successes bitter if Agassiz is to be believed. The treadmill of achievement driven by the desire for meaning in envious comparison and competition with others. It is the treadmill of self-salvation trying to validate our own lives. And the preacher says in verse 6, it is a chasing after the wind. Power leads to oppression. Achievement comes from envy. And now lastly, wealth and contentment. I've called it contentment and community. Look at verse 7. 
Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Notice, I saw um, something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. What a modern man he is. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Here is a man discontented with what he has, always striving, never satisfied, always toiling, never resting, never enough, just one more. And I saw the meaningless under the sun of this way of life. Well, there's a description of us. Stretching, reaching, yearning for more, never satisfied with what we've got, never contented. Verse 8 shows us that actually he has sacrificed relationships, hasn't he? For the sake of his pursuit of wealth. He's all alone, no son or brother. He's actually burnt all of his bridges in life. Do you know somebody like that? They've worked so hard their whole lives that they have taken for granted the relationships that they were given. They've prioritized wealth over friendship, over family, over relationships. In endless toil, he says, and still they are discontented with their wealth. Never satisfied, never contented. Um, do you know the, the, the name Rockefeller? You've probably heard it. He was the richest man in, in ever, basically. And uh, he's dead, long dead. But if you um, adjusted what he was worth to today's money, he would have been worth, are you sitting down, 410 billion US dollars. It's an unspeakable amount of money. It's, it's unimaginable. Elon Musk, by way of comparison, is worth a measly 206 billion, about half of what Rockefeller was worth. Famously, he was asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Here was his answer, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if I could just have like one 410th of his wealth, one billion dollars, I'll be okay. No, you won't. You'll want one more. As many um, lottery winners have displayed. Have you read those stories? Have you seen those things on YouTube? These idiot lottery winners who win a trillion dollars or something and it's finished next week and they're back in poverty and in debt. You know, in a moment of clarity, this man who has prioritized wealth and advancement over relationships, he comes to his senses. And in verse 8, he says, for whom am I toiling? He sort of comes up for air for a moment and he says, like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I doing this for? Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? It is all just utterly meaningless. Is there something better? Yes. Well, look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. What is better? Here is a man who has burnt all of his bridges. He's on his own. He's working day and night like a dog. I actually know a woman like this who literally works like a dog. She's got no relationships to speak of in her life. She's in her 70s. She's got no children to leave her wealth to. She's astonishingly wealthy. 
Her life is completely and utterly without meaning. He's talking about this man's aloneness, the lack of community, the lack of, of working together for a sum bigger than its parts, the lack of a sense of working for something that's greater, that's bigger, that transcends this life under the sun. And then he lists the benefits that this man is missing out on, on in verse 9 to 12. Look at verse 9. Um, the benefits of community. There's a good, there's a better return for their labor. Verse 10, they can help each other when one of them falls. Verse 11, they can keep each other warm when it's cold. Verse 12, they can defend each other. See, that's better than being alone, looking back after decades of slaving away, earning tons of money and looking back at your life and seeing in your wake just broken relationships and burnt bridges. Is there a better way? Well, it's better to be part of a community that cooperates instead of competing in envy. It's better to be part of a community that doesn't oppress but defends and warms and helps. Much better to be part of that. An unselfish community. Our world is characterized whether you're chasing power or achievement or wealth. You will be a selfish person. Better to be part of an unselfish community. But who can do it for us? Who can deliver this to us? Who can lead us towards a community like this? The politicians can't do it. The economists can't do it. The historians don't know what they're talking about. Well, he tries one more avenue. He explores one more avenue. Maybe a king can do it. Look at verse 13, and here's my fourth and final point, king and leadership. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor, there was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor, with the king. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Who can lead us to an unselfish community where there is no abuse of power, oppression, uh, or selfishness, or envy? Surely there is somebody that can take us off the hamster wheel of meaninglessness, into a community of other person-centeredness, a kingdom maybe of other person-centeredness. Surely a king who has himself experienced oppression and poverty and imprisonment could lead us into that community. Does that ring any bells for you? We have our own leader in our history like that. His name is Mr. Mandela. He was in prison. He came from poverty. He started incredibly well. He led us into the Rainbow Nation before most of you were born. He was, a, he was a king, if you like, a president born in oppression who came from prison. But what is his legacy now a mere 30 years later? Oppression and hunger and gender-based violence on never-before-seen scales. He failed. You know, not even, not even Solomon could achieve this. 
Solomon, the greatest, wisest king who ever lived, well, it ended badly for him as well. And so what hope is there for us in this world under the sun? Nobody can do it. No one gets it right. Everyone fails. No system, no philosophy, no leader. What are we going to do in a dog-eat-dog, survival-of-the-fittest, sink-or-swim world? Where can we turn? Well, of course, when you factor God in, who is above the sun, everything changes. For he has sent us his son, a king like no other, a king who was above the sun and came to under the sun to face down oppression on its own turf, the abuse of power and envy and selfishness. He suffered because of the envy of others. A king who is greater than Solomon. Look at what he says about himself in Matthew. We could have gone to different places in the New Testament, but look at what he says about himself in Matthew 11. Look at the power that he has in this verse. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Can you think of anything more powerful than that? Has anybody ever had more power than the great living God who made the heavens and the earth giving all things to somebody? Jesus is the most powerful king who has ever lived. But look at verse 29 of this passage. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for though I am the most powerful person you've ever met, though I've got power over your life, over your future, over every relationship, over every cell in your body, I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest. Finally, a king that we can trust, a leader that you want to be led by, somebody who won't abuse his position and power, though it is very great. And so in verse 28, he tells us these well-known words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See the power that he's got? You see the gentleness that he's got? And then the invitation, come to me, follow me. I'm your king. I'm a king that you can trust. I can take you off the hamster wheel, off the treadmill. I can give you meaning. Achievement won't deliver it, but I can deliver it. Power won't deliver it. Wealth won't deliver it. I'll deliver it to you. I will give your life meaning. I have the right to tell you what your life means. In high school, you all learned in life orientation that you need to make up your own meaning for yourself. That's what you learned over and over and over and over again. The preacher says to us tonight, that is nonsense. doesn't matter what you make up the meaning of your life for yourself is. It's never going to lead you out of your meaninglessness. But I know someone who can. His name is Jesus. Have you let him? Have you asked him? Will you follow him?